You're listening to episode 5 of the Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Blazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about decomposition and nutrient cycling, how we define natural, and impacts on biodiversity. We're talking about nutrient cycling and decomposition in, uh, in ecological systems. So the source of all essential nutrients is either in the atmosphere or in the form of rocks and minerals around us as they make their way through living and inorganic forms through nutrient cycling. As organisms develop, they take in these nutrients and store them in their tissues and they use them for their life processes, effectively locking them up until such a time as they are released back into the global pool of nutrients from which other organisms can draw from through a process known as decomposition. Decomposition is the breakdown of the chemical bonds which are formed during the construction of plant and animal tissues and is a really complex process made up of leaching, fragmentation, not to be confused with landscape fragmentation, changes in physical and chemical structure, ingestion, and the excretion of waste. Decomposers are rare organisms that, or rather, they are organisms that feed on dead organic matter uh, or detritus, and this includes microbial decomposers, which are made up of fungi and bacteria and the detritivores, which are made up of animals which primarily feed on feces. These decomposers can be further broken down into the microflora, so these are aerobic and anaerobic bacteria as well as fungi, the microfauna, which are organisms that are less than 100 micrometers, primarily protozoans and nematodes, and the mesofauna, which are about 100 micrometers to 2 millimeters, mostly potworms and springtails, the macrofauna, which are any detritivores that are around 2 to 20 millimeters, and the megafauna, which is any organism that's larger than 20 millimeters. Organisms that feed on the microbes themselves are known as microbivores, thus ensuring that the nutrients are cycling fully within the system. Whenever organic matter is transformed from organic into inorganic constituents by decomposers, this is known as mineralization. When these same decomposers take in and use those nutrients for their own life processes, we call this immobilization. Decomposed nutrients are always in a cycle, so they're in a flux between mineralization and immobilization. Not all organic matter decomposes at the same rate, and the rate of decay is related to two factors. The quality of the substrate, which is judged by the amount of lignin, which is a series of compounds which yield almost no energy to microbes, as well as the features of the environment, such as the temperature, the pH, and the precipitation in the, in the environment. So in warmer, more humid environments, the rates of decomposition are very high, and the soil organic matter has a residence time of only about one to two years. But in drier, colder regions of the world, organic matter in the soil can stay relatively untouched for thousands of years. All ecosystems have a vertical separation between the zones of primary productivity and the zones of decomposition. Terrestrial and coastal ecosystems are bridged physically by plants, so from the root to the top of the leaves, while open water ecosystems are separated into distinct zones, which are divided by the relative temperature. So there's the epilimnion, which is at the top. This is usually the nutrient-poor uh, warm surface water. There's the thermocline in the middle, so these middle waters are kind of an intermediate temperature, and the hypolimnion, which are the nutrient-rich cold deep waters. In open water ecosystems, the changes in surface water temperature over the seasons causes the thermocline to break down, and the epilimnion and the hypolimnion mix uh, in a process known as turnover. Aquatic environments such as open water ponds, lakes, and oceans have living and dead organisms drift between the layers of the water column known as particulate organic matter and dissolved organic matter. Aerobic bacteria break down the material at the top very quickly, while anaerobic bacteria break down the matter at the bottom very slowly. 
However, despite the bacterial processes being slower at the bottom, the relatively large sink of nutrients that are at the bottom of these open waters leads to a relatively higher amount of decomposition taking place uh, in these open water regions at the, at the bottom as opposed to at the top. Now in terrestrial environments, uh, they're driven by the soil microbial loop, uh, which is due to the actions of plants within a region of soil known as the rhizosphere. Within the rhizosphere, plant roots release carbohydrates, known as root exudates, in order to supplement the microbe communities present in the soil. With an abundant source of carbon provided by the plants, the limiting factor for the microbes becomes the other nutrients, and so they begin to break down the organic matter found in the soil. The sudden increase in microbial populations attracts microbivores, which then release even more nutrients into the system, which allow the plants to happily take in all of these newly available nutrients. And so from that, I know, Charlie, you've chosen a, a pretty sweet paper to talk about this week, so I'll, uh, I'll hand it over to you. Perfect. Thank you. So this week, I chose a paper that was written by Musa C. Lambo and collaborators in the journal Ecological Indicators. So it's another niche article that's related, related to a very applied issue that's comparable to last week's discussion, which was like on primary productivity and its variation through time after forest fires. So Lembo's work was called, or is called, Leaf Litter Decomposition and Decomposer Communities in Streams Affected by Intensive Forest Biomass Removal. So I repeat, Leaf Litter Decomposition and Decomposer Communities in Streams Affected by Intensive Forest Biomass Removal. In this paper, he claims that most freshwater processes, processes and, these, and the responses to anthropogenic, anthropogenic, sorry, anthropogenic disturbances are Traditional, traditionally assessed through the use of structural attributes. By structural attributes, he refers to species diversity or community composition. However, he also mentions the lack of functional attributes to assess these same ecosystem processes, so such as leaf litter decomposition uh, that we see in this, in this paper. So leaf litter decomposition from riparian trees, called trees along waterways, form the basis of woodland stream food webs as a was talking with, with the recent increase in the use of forest biomass as an alternative source of, source of energy, conventional logging practices are progressively changed for logging residue removal practices. We also call them LRR for logging residue removal. As, in, as the name implies, it consists of a removal of logging residues after cutting instead of leaving them on site. Both practices, which means both conventionally logging practices and logging residue removal practices, they are known to increase erosion levels and sediment sedimentation in streams, which reduces the decomposer's capacity to degrade leaf litter and therefore contribute to their stream food web. So the experiment took place in central Finland and consisted in an investigation of the rate of decomposition of alder leaves in logging residue removal sites and conventional logging sites. The authors ran the experiment using three different treatments, conventional logging sites, logging residue removal sites, and reference sites, which were undisturbed, pristine areas used as control. They split the different decomposers categ decomposer categories in three. So it was a fungal category, bacterial category, which were both part of the microbial subgroup, and the shredders category. In all three instrumental, uh, all three are instrumental to the decomposing process observing natural streams. So they therefore created subgroups to look at the relative impact of each group individually to the decomposition process. So in a nutshell, they used small mesh bags of two different mesh sizes to allow and exclude invertebrates from entering leaf bags. The experiment actually revealed that conventionally logged sites 
have the highest effect on leaf decomposition rates, whereas LRR, or logging residue removal sites, only showed an intermediate effect, and the reference sites had the smallest effect on decomposition rates. That is pretty interesting, so we'll talk about this a bit later on. But this is mainly explained in the article by the fact that logging practices increases that the amount of nutrients falling in the water column and augments the rate of decomposition because of that. However, the effect seems to be camouflaged in some way by the higher rate of sedimentation caused by logging residue removal. The effect of bacteria on decomposition rates was surprisingly higher than fungi decomposition rates or fungi caused decomposition rates. And this um, was observed by the relative biomass of fungi rel uh, compared to bacteria. So this paper was very interesting. I really liked reading it and it was a bit more accessible to me than last week's paper. Um, I found it interesting because it was approachable. It was very, it was easier to read for the average scientist that is not, um, that is a bit naive to the field of, uh, of um, ecological indicators. However, the paper itself was a bit hard to follow when it comes to its graphs and its analyses because from a fundamental perspective, we are used to seeing uh, significant values as something that can be explained in the paper pretty easily. But when it comes to observing data and only assessing the differences by looking at trends in graphs, I was not very convinced by that. So if we start talking about uh, these graphs and how, what, what do you think by looking at the different graphs and how small differences are, are um, analyzed and, ex and are explaining um, trends? So like how can we be sure that these trends in graphs are actually do actually mean something if they were not officially significant? Um, any one of you. So in terms of interpretation of the graph um, regarding insignificant results? Yeah, like regarding how can we tell that there is actually an effect of one treatment compared to the other if it is not officially significant compared to uh, if we look at biological standards? Well, certainly we have our, our kind of lines in the sand, as we've mentioned in the past, where we where we decide upon what makes up the statistical significance um, and where we make those decisions. Now, when it comes to a, a study like this, where um, where there there is a, a somewhat of an agenda. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed, but they uh, they were one of the the funding organizations was a uh, sort of funding organization. One of the organizations that was involved in the um, in the selection of sites was actually a forestry company or corporation. Um, so, you know, when it comes to st statistical significance from a scientific perspective, I agree it, it becomes a little bit difficult when we have insignificant results. However, when it comes to making decisions, if this is the best information that we have, I suppose we must uh, we must follow kind of at least what the trends are showing, and then go in and take more uh, more data and, and see if it uh, if it stands up to stands up to the uh, the scientific method in that sense. And do we believe that? that um, the explanations behind um, the trends they observe in their graphs are enough to convince the, the reader that this is something that we could observe, that because of um, the the more nutrients falling in the water column, that could give a better effect for the detritivores to be able to to be more prominent and more efficient in, in the water column. Let's say for the conventional logging sites, as an, as an example, um, they mentioned that there's probably more nutrients falling down in the water column from the cutting activities, but since the logging removal um, is not happening, there's a bit less sedimentation happening. So are these conclusions uh, enough for you with your background knowledge to be convinced that uh, this is actually the true effect we're seeing 
in the wild? I mean, if I had to make a decision right now and say, you know, this is what we're going to do, personally, I would not. The reason being that it, it seems that they've taken a, essentially a snapshot in time. Um, and maybe maybe that is the case at, at right at the beginning when these areas have been have been logged, you know, in, in these conventionally logged areas, um, that there is a high nutrient output. That, that I can understand because a lot of the... Um, a lot of the flora and, and even some of the fauna that winds up in these waterways is going to die and, and decompose. But on the, I think what needs to be looked at, at least in this this scenario, is more of the uh, the long term uh, trajectory. I mean, true at this specific snapshot, we've seen that conventionally logged areas have the highest decomposition rate. Um, but if I were, if if you'd ask me whether I'd be convinced that this is be all end all and this is truly what we um, we can make our decision on, I I'm a little bit skeptical. Yeah, I think you're you're bringing up a good point too. I don't know if you guys noticed the um, sample sites that they use the the years since logging they varied between two and six years. So um, to me, I think the decomposition process can be quite different. Um, within those treatments, depending on uh, what year you're looking at it, right? Totally. I mean, just like last week's paper, we, we were looking at the effect um, of a disturbance through time. And if the effect will always change through time, it's like that for everything. There's going to be some sort of selection and some sort of species that will be more prominent at the beginning when there's a bit more sediments in the water column. And later on, it's probably going to wash away and like the equilibrium of that water column will come back so for sure you're bringing up a good point that if we don't have the same values when it comes to years after the disturbance then can we really um put an actual effect and be confident of that effect well you actually you actually brought up a good point just just there charlie when you mentioned you know can we be convinced that it's a natural effect but what's what's the definition of natural in your opinion well, good question. Uh, I meant natural effect. I said, um, well, when when I see natural effect, I, good question actually. <laughs> so we we start with a human caused disturbance. Um, that's at t zero times zero, and then later on, on when there's going to be some equilibrium that was before the disturbance that will potentially be gained. You know, maybe like there's going to be a bit less sediments or more sediments at first because of the cutting activity, and later on it's going to be more of a consistent amount of sediments that will be in the water column. So uh, that first, the, the different amounts of sediments, depending on the time after the disturbance, can have an impact on the species that are more prominent in the water column, but also from the species present, maybe some species will be able to recover from that effect quicker than others. Um, and that we can, we can also make a difference in the species distribution in the water column that does do the, that does have an effect on on the decomposition rates also. Um, I think you're, you're, another thing that you're, you're bringing up here is um, the logging residue removal. Um, I think they mentioned it in the paper, but um, forested sites or uh, harvested sites where they, they do this practice, you actually get more runoff, like nutrient runoff into the water. So that's also shifting a lot of the uh, chemical composition of the water there too. And then altering the decomposition rates that way. Exactly. So there is like a confounding effect where there's um, lots of sedimentation happening from the logging activities, but at the same time, so much more nutrient 
participants are making it into the water because of the same activity. Uh, so it's interesting to see how much of a positive impact on the on the decomposition rates is caused by that same practice. Um, of course, that 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 impact was camouflaged in the case of the logging residue removal, as they mentioned. But it would be interesting to see what would be the positive effects of of that situation on the decomposers versus the negative effects. And maybe if it would be interesting to see if this effect does change through time. So I wonder if there, you have any idea how they could have done that. Maybe like um, do different treatments within their, the same streams or within in different streams, having a bit more uh, more sites and looking if um, there's a difference between the actual amount of nutrients making it into the water because of the activities, the amount of or the, the of the amount of Dutch um, decomposition that is not happening because of sedimentation blocking it, the sh the shredders, especially to make it through to the leaves. Yeah, I, well, I think it, it definitely would have been interesting to see uh, some kind of a time variable thrown in there again, because uh, you know we have differences from two to six years. So um, if they could structure the data in that way, like looking at um, time sense logging as well. I think yeah, I agree. Time since logging would would certainly be uh you know I think the the biggest improvement or change they can make to this kind of study. I think also if they were to follow these streams, I think they took it down to the uh, I think the peatland catchments I believe, but I'm not sure how far down the because um, these are looking at at uh, at open water areas, correct? As opposed to the um the the previous work that's been done in the the riffles. That they mentioned like they, they followed it down but they were looking at essentially right after the like immediately downstream from these these logged areas yeah. but i'd be interested it was in seeing 50 meters downstream eggs again okay, yeah so 50 meters so 50 yeah. meters especially for a forested plot of land is nothing right that's essentially right where the action is taking place but i'd be interested also to see what would happen especially the effects of these nutrients as you move down the, downstream i mean we have the river continuum hypothesis, which talks about how these different nutrient inputs at different stages of a stream as it as it moves from from upstream to downstream uh, from the headwaters um, changes the composition, both the community structure, but also the species composition that you find along these rivers. Um, and this is purely based on the rates of decomposition of, of various plant material as they make it their way down. It's caused by um, in regions such as this, the the in, in times such as autumn, where leaves are are entering the waterway at certain points, and this allows for almost kind of like a a, a nutrient kind of uh, pulse that comes in. And um, so, I'd be interested in also seeing whether or not these kind of changes to the environment will also lead to downstream effects, where they might actually mask some of the natural processes that are taking place on these rivers. Because I think there's a larger story to be said here for um, for kind of these these cross ecosystem approaches. Yeah, I mean it, it'd be it definitely be interesting in terms of ecosystem resilience, right? So, uh, at what point does the uh, structural composition and function uh, stabilize downstream? And, and is that natural? Because now that the disturbance took place, the trees will not grow until you know hundreds of years. So the question is is Will we reach the same state at some point, or are we just going to have more sedimentation happening and just a different environment totally for these species downstream? Well, I think that brings up the idea of, of and you mentioned it earlier, you know, ecological resistance and resilience. You know, can this system bounce back 
um, in the case of resilience, to, you know, what we consider to be natural or the norm or what existed before, or, you know, can it resist the change itself? I mean, one would assume that it's not resisting the change because these areas are being cut down, um, though there could be an argument made for the the role of things such as fire and, and grazing in these regions that might actually be causing other disturbances uh, beyond logging. But mm-hmm. uh, but there's also the, the idea of, of a of a new equilibrium being um, being created. So yeah. perhaps, you know, what we call natural, for example, is not in fact natural at all. It's just what existed before we started cutting down these trees. But now there might be a new system that that occurs that that is um, kind of brought brought in because of the logging activities, and perhaps that new system is in fact actually more biodiverse than the uh, the other regions. I know this is something that bring, that is brought up when we talk about um, the loss of forested land due to dams, the the building of dams, where in fact the regions immediately upstream from the dam. Because of the fact there's now a rapid influx of water um, into areas that didn't have that, that level of water before, actually sometimes are more diverse um, and, and are able to, to carry more species because now there's, there's this, um, you know, there's, there's nutrients where there, and, and water where there, there wasn't before. So there's also the possibility that, in fact, logging, and this might be a dangerous, a dangerous argument to make from a conservation perspective, mm-hmm. though I think it's a very important one, is there might very well be the chance that after these logging activities, yes, we're seeing, you know, the decomposition rate uh, change between them, but perhaps that actually leads to something that is much, um, you know, in, in, depending on how we define what we're trying to conserve or, or what we're trying to, to keep or, or rather preserve, um, we might actually wind up with a system that is better quote unquote, um, than, than what, what existed before we came in and, and cut those areas down. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what they're seeing if we're looking purely at leaf decomposition rates, right? It's highest in the, um, conventional logging cases. So that could cause some kind of, um, I mean, I, I doubt it. Maybe it could lead to some kind of trophic cascade and, um, increase in the biodiversity in the area. So now the question is, more biodiversity better? Because better, quote-unquote, could mean lots of things and could be good for one thing or for one species and be detrimental to other species. So by doing this, we're inducing some sort of change. We're disturbing the environment. And yes, it can cause some more biodiversity in the in the short term. But the question is, can we predict what is going to have as an impact in the long term? Oh, I have and a lot to say about is, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's say about that. Well, about about the idea of whether or not biodiversity is, uh, you know, is the end game, is that the end goal? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I mean, biodiversity. Okay, so biodiversity certainly is an important thing. I mean, that's I think what draws many people from purely an aesthetic perspective. That's what draws a lot of people into biology and, and ecology, especially. And of course, there's the idea of, of uh, bioprospecting. We don't know whether or not these. Uh, these uh, very important um, species that we haven't yet discovered might actually lead to the, um, you know, potential future cures for diseases, um, types of cancer and things like that. And and we can definitely, t- we'll, we'll be talking a lot more about that when we talk about conservation. Um, but in terms of whether or not preserving all biodiversity or as much biodiversity as possible is the goal, I don't know. It's something that I've, I've personally um, debated with myself and with others quite a bit because 
we know that the, there is a background rate of extinction. We know that that's increased now in the Anthropocene. Um, but the question is, and the, and the idea beyond conservation is for humans to coexist in these areas. So when we're looking at something like logging, I mean, logging is, is a necessity for, for our survival. I mean, we, we use wood-based products. And to expect that we can use an area um, as a species, but also not affect the, the species that are there, I think it's, it's a pipe dream. We'll never truly be able to do it. We can work towards it, but to, to preserve every species in that area, is, is, um, it's, it's a monumental task, and I don't think it's, it's really possible. There's even you know, species of microbes, or you know, what we call species of microbes, that might be going extinct every second um, that we don't know about because we've delogged an area or, or logged an area rather. And um, but at the same time, these these kind of changes like logging um, could also be the catalyst for for new selection pressures where we uh, we might not see it right away, but we might see you know thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years down the line, um, new species develop from these these um, these activities. So I don't know if, if when we look at the, a larger scale, especially an evolutionary timescale, whether or not biodiversity is is the goal or preserving biodiversity is the goal, because ultimately something's got to give. And if it's not us, it's it's unfortunately going to be uh, going to be something else. Well, I think one one issue is it's not so much the change that's the problem. It's the rate of change. So, you know, if you're dealing with a small population or spot a population with specific characteristics where it can't really recover quickly in a lot of cases it can lead to just extinction in the area um and then on top of that i think uh, another thing is when we're making these assessments of like bioassessments, assessments uh, this is kind of what the authors were talking about at the beginning when they were saying that ecosystem function has to be put in with the assessment so we can look at uh, biodiversity on its own but we don't really get a full picture unless we include um, how that shift is altering ecosystem function. So where do we draw the line? I mean, we if we're looking at an ecosystem or ecosystem functions as a machine, if we are able to, to remove one species and the machine still works, then have we truly lost anything? The machine still works in our living you know in the after a few years of observations it still works now down the line do we know how it's going to react in a few years or in a few decades we don't really know and uh, again like i'm just speaking hypothetically right now we don't know what's going to happen with the increase in biodiversity is it going to allow some species to flourish a bit more than others and then start dominating a bit more than we would expect and reduce the biodiversity by by doing this after 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 some time you know, so maybe some species will take a bit longer to adapt to a new change. They're a bit more, they're as resilient as other species, but it just take them, it takes them more time to make it to, to their optimum. And then they will be able to dominate other species and reduce that same biodiversity. Um, I'm, again, I'm not 100% sure how these disturbances could cause biodiversity to shoot up like this and or skyrocket, skyrocket like this and, and fall back afterwards. But uh, Well, like, I would use the example of human because, evolution. Yeah, in what sense? I mean, in the in the sense that we the the out of Africa hypothesis, when we had this this bottlenecking effect, where we went from about a population of five million as a species to what we are now, which is you know rounding out to 
to 7.8 billion, right? Um, and it was that bottleneck. There, there's there's some literature out there that talks about this how we're in this period in human evolution now where we are we have just an an almost infinite amount of diversity, um, genetic diversity within our, our ourselves as a species. And so now and, and to the fact that it's to or rather to a point that natural selection is not able to act um, in the same same way as it would in, in many other species, and that the there is this inevitable crash that will come come by um, for better or for worse when you're looking at these time scales, um, and eventually that will lead us back into you know population sizes where natural selection is taking a um, is is kind of running as as it should. Um, so I I would imagine similarly. If you're looking at especially smaller scale systems, if you're looking at a, at a river, if you're looking at a, a pond, even um, for some of these species, I mean that pond or, or that you know it's, they they talk about the riparian zone here, um, which is the that zone right by the the edges of the waterways. I mean for some of these species, that is their entire world, and something like a logging disturbance um, can can be enough to cause these population bottlenecks, which then down the line could lead to just as the the um, the bottleneck that affected us as a species, you know, eventually led to this massive radiation of diversity, could lead to a larger radiation for whatever these other smaller species are. And actually, you mentioned something as well, Charlie, um, when you were talking about dominance. And in this paper, they they talk about dominance as a an indicator because they actually when they're looking at microbial or bacterial specifically biomass, they used um, they used just the sheer numbers as the indicator of its purpose as a, as the dominant decomposer. Um, when one could also make an argument that um, and and they also do kind of allude to this when they're talking about the uh, the shredder the the invertebrate decomposer earlier on in the paper, they say that in this case they found that evenness. Um, th- th- this process led to larger evenness in the community. So they're they're saying that, um, in fact, having more specialists, some of these rare species in this environment, was allowing the decomposition rate to be higher um, than in regions where there was just purely generalists, even if those generalists were known to be very strong decomposers. Um, so, so when it comes to actually measuring these systems, so when we're talking about dominance, for example, should we be look and, and evenness, should we be looking at purely the biomass? Or are we looking at the genetic diversity? I know Kyle certainly has much to say about this, um, but, uh, but yeah, I'll leave it, I'll leave it to, to you guys. I have that, you know, it was, it was something that came up when I was reading this paper. For me, like how, how does evenness can affect uh, or can elevate the functioning of the ecosystem uh, concretely. Do you have an idea? Can you explain that to me? Because I'm not sure I understood that part of the paper. So it's, well, it's, it's basically like synergistic effects from other microbes in the area. So maybe one is producing a metabolite that's used by another. So it's sort of um, sort of you get more. Um, it, it speeds it like catalyzes the process. So it just gives more space for the complementarity of species, for one species to be able to help out the other in doing its work in, in some ways. Yeah, or more free metabolites floating around for other species. You could look at it that way, too. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea we were, we were mentioning you, earlier with the, the ecosystem functions and as being this these cogs in a machine. Do you, if, if, if it's truly a machine, then each, each piece 
has a single function and and it'll and it that's what builds and so in theory you should be able to take an ecosystem and break it down into its individual components and say okay well you know the shredders are doing just this and this microbe and that microbe and that fungi are doing this um and and we should be able to then add all that together and be able to predict what the system does but in a system like this if that is indeed the case where we're getting these synergistic interactions that well the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts so now when we're looking at at conserving these regions how do we make those decisions um when we're looking at at maintaining either dominance or evenness or deciding what the structure community structure should look like i think generally the decision is made based on um what the ecosystem how the ecosystem has been interpreted prior to the disturbance right um and i, I kind of want to go back to something you said earlier you're talking about the human species and bottleneck effects and how that's led to all this adaptive radiation um i'd have to, i don't think that that's like a very good analogy because the human species we almost went extinct from this right so to say that this is like a good way of driving evolution in other species i don't know if that's really the case and again why do we want other species to evolve i mean there's no direction like evolution isn't directional right it's only adaptation to the local environment so to suggest that we need to drive further adaptation it doesn't to me it doesn't really make sense well i think what i was getting at was more well, i mean whether it's a good method of preserving it that certainly is is up for debate um but what I meant in terms of of preserving and, and how this relates to the preservation of species, it's when we're it's it's in the in the sense of looking at these larger time scales. So, for example, we're saying we want to preserve species and biodiversity now, because as you mentioned, these these species are are adapted to the environment that they're they're inhabiting. However, what if we're looking at species? If we're looking at at a species as an individual component, um, and we're saying, okay, we want to preserve this. Well, what's to say that this almost in a sense was meant to be preserved? I mean, if this was going to change based on the, the new environment, should we also be looking at preserving future species that come about uh, and future diversity? Is everything in the same sense as what we're saying is natural in this this wooded system is the thing that we must preserve when we're looking at the preservation of species? Are we solely focusing on preserving what already exists? as opposed to thinking of what we can do to maintain the lineages so that we're also in a sense preserving what, and it's kind of a, a bit of an odd term to use, I suppose, preserving in this case, but, um, but really just thinking of, of preserving future species that will come about. Right, it's like, interesting that you say that, sorry to interrupt quickly, no, but I find, I find it really cool because we are again, looking at preserving what we see and we can touch right now in the practice but the processes have been taking place for millions of years. So why would it be that we would want to preserve what we've known for the last thousands of years when we could just accept that things are changing? We live in a dynamic world and things do change and processes do happen and some species going stagnant, other species do arise. So what is what what is our, our role in that whole situation? I mean, I'm pretty much repeating your question, Arun, but I find it really interesting because instead of like trying to preserve these structural components, why aren't we going for these functional parts, functional components, just like they mentioned in the study? Yeah, so I think I think going for functional components makes makes sense. 
because you're still preserving the um, you're still preserving ecosystem function, which allows for um, like preservation of all the selection pressures within that region. And so I would think, you know, if one one thing goes extinct, maybe something else can feel uh, fill that role within that ecosystem. Um, yeah. Um, as, as far as what you were saying, Arun, if, if we pick, if it sounds like you're just kind of saying, well, what what the sensitive species are going to go extinct anyways, so we may as well just allow the other ones to uh, adaptively radiate, and then we're fine. Is that like a is that a fair way of summarizing? Or, or I not? mean, it's less so on 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 kind of letting things go extinct, but more so on saying as as to is is the disturbance truly a disturbance and if and if so why are we calling it a disturbance in the first place i mean it's a disturbance from our perspective of saying you know it was like this and now it's no longer like this therefore it was disturbed but perhaps this quote unquote disturbance is really going to lead is 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 i know the catalyst that will lead to future population so it's it's a little bit less so on what we're going to lose and more so on what we're going to gain as uh, in terms of biodiversity. Exactly. I totally agree with that because if we look at the typical example of selection with the giraffes and the trees, se selection went for larger necks because there was no more small trees. And <laughs> that is a good example just because we, we're looking at disturbance from the perspective of the giraffe, if that, if that makes sense. It's a pretty silly example to use but at the same time we only call it the disturbance because it's human cause it's an anthropogenic effect so we call it the disturbance but we are still part of the environment and with whopping part of the environment as you mentioned Arun that we will have an impact we're trying to live in places where we have to use resources therefore we do uh, use conventional logging techniques and now we're going a bit more towards the the logging removal techniques because we can use the actual logging residues for our fuel so if we are using the environment in that way and we are causing the change in the environment, we can call it a disturbance, we can call it whatever we want, but at the end of the day, we will cause a change in the, in, the in the environment. And I think the only thing we can logically and honestly try to preserve is uh, the process or are the processes that will take place after our impact, because we have an impact as a species because we're so numerous, but we, we're not the only species that has had an impact on Earth and on the history of selection. Am I correct? Yep. And in and in terms of in terms of you know making sure or measuring our impacts, and I think this this might um, hopefully this will this will kind of clarify the the thoughts that are running around in my head right now. Um, and Kyle, please let me know if if uh, if it sounds like I'm going off on a crazy wild tangent again. But um, <laughs> but you know I'm thinking in terms of you know when we're looking at at an impact. Let's let's say okay let's say again here we're talking about these. Um, these conventionally logged systems versus the um, the systems where where the um, where the uh, the the residues are removed, so every everything is taken out of there and, and used for 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 fuel. Um, when we're let's say we now we're, we're looking, okay, what's the the better of the two? And we're saying, okay, well, you know what? We see that in fact decomposition rates are higher in conventionally logged systems. And in the, the other system, it's intermediate, the quote-unquote natural system, it's the lowest amount for the decomposition rate. And we, we now take action. We say, okay, we're going to preserve this part of the system, and we're going to say that we're to make sure that the pH of the water is this, and 
We had to make sure that we leave these zones untouched and, and these zones can be logged. Well, no matter what we do, we're going to have an impact. And what if the system actually is stronger if we were to log the whole area as opposed to leaving a patchwork? Is it, is it, you know, we were, what we're really doing is we're playing with selection pressures at this point. And what if when we play with these selection pressures, we actually wind up, I mean, it's, we, it's hard for us, especially at this time in history, um, to be able to look and, and forecast. In fact, I would say it's impossible for us to really forecast what a species will, will look like or what species will exist in the future. Um, but what if, in fact, logging the area, just to play devil's advocate for a bit here, mm-hmm. will, will lead to a, a, a stronger system, a more robust system, a more biodiverse system, um, let's say 300,000 years or 500,000 years down the line, um, then who are we to say that we're having an impact or rather a negative impact? Because I think when we say impact, certainly there will be impacts, but when we're talking about especially conservation, we really mean negative impacts to the system. Well, I, I don't know if that's a great example, though. I mean, if you completely clear-cut the whole thing, you're going to remove, I don't know, close to you, like probably over 95% of the species there, right? So. But what about those other 5%? Now they have all this space, all these nutrients. Right. But the thing is, you have to remember that the adaptive pressure or the selection pressures that have led those species to have the forms that they have now, it's it's dependent on the other species in the environment and the ecosystem so it's you're removing all these species that they've sort of co-evolved with or that have been placing directional selection pressures on them or uh over millions of years and now you're just cutting them all out i mean i don't think the system would be functioning at all those last five percent like i mean maybe we maybe that's even too generous might not even be five percent i i just don't see how it could still function after clear-cutting the whole thing and i think it's okay not to be able to see it because we as a species we're not able to forecast everything that will happen in the environment according to our disturbances we can see what the impact will be on a short-term basis but evolution has happened in a bit of longer of a time span than our lifetime so it's a bit hard to say that we know what's going to happen with these five percent and of course five percent is only hypothetical so we could drop to i don't know 26% of the species or the bio, biodiversity, and that could be enough for the environment to re- recover from that and to show its resilience and actually become even bio, more biodiverse in, on a long-term basis. Um, so it's, it's hard to say that our disturbance or our impact right now is not detrimental in the long term, but do we really know what's going to happen just by what we observe now, a few years down the line after disturbance? I understand what you're saying, Kyle, because that is why we are doing taking all these preservation actions, conservation actions, and trying to preserve our biodiversity, and because we're having a very large impact that's happening very quickly and faster than species can actually adapt. We're looking at our models that we've, I think we've looked at. Apparently, it's more something like species are not even able to adapt to to our to the to the climate change processes because they're like ten times ten thousand times slower to evolve. It will have to be 10,000 times faster to be able to keep up with the changes happening right now. So, of course, in that case, it's a bit hard to believe that they will, the ecosystem as a whole will recover from that. But two million years, two million years down the line, can we really truly know that we will have 
a lower biodiversity or a lower amount of species on the planet. Can we truly say that? I'm, I'm not 100% convinced about that. Yeah, I think the problem, though, is like us getting to that level. I mean, we're dependent on ecosystem services. So if there's 5% left and none of and we don't benefit from any of the ecosystem services, well, it's great. They'll rebound eventually, but we won't make it. So it's. And that's part know. of selection that that, yeah. that is supposed to happen as well. You know, a species will reach its carrying capacity and then we will start <laughs> dropping population size. And that has to happen for Earth to keep its sanity in some sense. Human species cannot stay around forever. So I think it's not a good thing, but it's just part of evolution. As Arun said earlier as well, we will have that huge surge in biodiversity. It will be very prominent all over the planet. And then at some point, it will be just too many of us. And our impact will be too high and we won't be able to, <laughs> to just find the resources to survive. A good example is kangaroos in Australia right now. There's like 45 million kangaroos in Australia because we decided to eradicate all the, the, the predators in the south part of, of the country. So now, because of that, there's way too many kangaroos and they're all dying of heat and dying of hunger because there's not enough resources for all of them. So it's a bit of a forecast of what the human species might look like later on, just because there's too many of them, because there's no selection pressures acting on them, acting on them right now. There's no predation right. or nothing keeping the population to a certain level. So then I would ask, would wiping, did wiping out predators lead to uh, an increase in the adaptive radiation of kangaroo species? I mean, I think you just reduce the selection pressure on kangaroos. So I don't think it was a matter of adaption or anything. It was just a matter of everyone would make it. So there's well, if you're reducing, less than adaptive radiation. If you're reducing selection pressure, then you're implying that the evolutionary force that's driving them in one direction is no longer doing that, right? That's that's right. So there should be, yeah, so this, this relaxed selection pressure should allow for the persistence of, of certain genetic variants that would not have survived before. I mean, I'm curious, actually, Charlie, when you were out there, um, if you saw individuals or even whole populations of kangaroos, um, either that you tagged or those that might have been kind of hanging around those that you, you had tagged, if um, if you saw individuals that, at least in your opinion, wouldn't have survived if if uh, you know if they were on the other side of the dingo fence, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, that's an amazing question. Kangaroos are there's a bit more recruitment than there would be if there were more more predators around. There's there are no dingoes in the south eastern part of Australia, there are some predators, uh, foxes, that were introduced years ago by Europeans. Um, but yeah, so long story short, there is some predation, but for sure if there was a bit more predation, like if there were dingoes and Tasmanian devils, there would be a bit of a small recruitment rate, and only young that have maybe fitter moms that are more able to to allow their, 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 their joey to grow faster, and to keep their joey inside their pouch longer, and, and uh, maybe hop away from dingoes and not get eaten while having something in their past, these individuals would survive. So there would be some sort of selective pressure that would be a bit more present. Um, but yeah, I, I cannot, from my data or from my observations, any individual per se that that would be more likely to... Actually, you know what? Let me think about it for a sec. Uh, female kangaroos can actually get their joeys from the age of two, in theory. Most females will actually start getting joeys at three or four years old and the, the reproductive cost is much higher when they're younger of course or when they're very old because they reach senescence 
So I think at the youngest and oldest ages, it would be a bit tougher for them to, to make it with all this predation around. But at the same time, it's a good question because it's either there would be more of a early on uh, individuals are trying to, to reproduce faster because they know they, they might get predated upon faster or they, they just might um, increase their or wait a bit longer in their lifetime to get their first joey because they'll be in a fitter state that they can still avoid predation or allow their joeys to grow to a larger size uh, faster. So that's a really good question. I would not be able to see how how they would, what, what the pressure would drive them to, to what state the pressure would drive them actually. I don't know if you have any idea from your systems or even from the kangaroo system. I guess we'll just have to wait for you to go back to the field and tell us. Oh, worth <laughs> Yeah, this question will be in my head now. What if this female <laughs> had a bingo right away? Right, that's, that's very interesting, though. I wonder. That's actually really good questions. You're going to be looking for all the, the weak kangaroos now and, and wondering if, they've, uh, if they'd survive. I mean, I could imagine, yeah. certainly when we look at it from a, from a behavioral perspective, we do notice that you know, under, under a... Um, you know, under a an increased predator regime, whether that be chemical or, or visual or or actual active predation, I mean, we do see that these behaviors are shifted. I mean, the the idea of of the trade offs associated with neophobia and and foraging costs are are you know under other situations of um, high uh, predation risk. I mean, what underlies those is the fact that you have these different personalities or behavioral syndromes amongst animals, which are then able to, um, which will then persist. And, and, you know, in an area where there's, where there's more predators, the bolder, the bolder fish, let's say, or even I imagine kangaroos won't last very long. And so they won't be able to sire any, any offspring. Right. Um, so certainly we see this from a, from a behavioral perspective when we're looking at, um, when we're looking at at, at population um, survival, and you know, I've I've heard I've heard it been said uh, it, that you know behavior is the the first the the first wall or the the first uh, line of defense when it comes to uh, looking at the um, the forces of, of natural selection, right? It's you know the the whether an individual decides to go out looking for food versus stay and hide can change whether or not it gets enough nutrients. Or winds up getting eaten itself. Right. Um, so, so in areas where there are no predators, we see differences in behavior. So, I, I would imagine that this would then, um, then manifest itself in changes in the genetic, um, the genetic kind of components of these of these groups, these populations, and also um, down the line, influence whether or not there is this this adaptive radiation that occurs. Um, in the in the presence of a of relaxed selection pressure, in this case, let's say being um, being the lack of a predator. Oh, I mean, no, I find it really interesting because it is very true that you'll see these behaviors um, only manifest themselves in uh, relaxed predation areas, just because otherwise there's only one phenotype that will be favored. Um, the shy ones in that case who in high predation areas, um, and yeah, I wonder because you just get that reduced variation because of that that selection at first um and yeah i don't know where i'm going with that to be honest with you but i just yeah it's pretty interesting how it's the first line of defense from any selection perspective and how the individual will risk i guess uh it's 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 survival 
just to get its resources, get mates, or or yeah, or protect its territory even. So, I mean, ultimately, yeah. selection does act on the on the phenotype. Always. And and so, one would imagine that in an area that's logged, that we would see, you know, this this differential selection pressure, this change, perhaps. Perhaps in well, certainly actually in new ways and new new methods of, of or new um, new pressures will be affecting these these populations, um, and I, this kind of just comes back to what I was I was saying earlier is that now that there's these new selection pressures, um, and and also in so in some ways there's there's increases in selection pressure. Maybe there's a new predator in in the area because the pH of the water has dropped low enough that. Um, that a certain fish is now able to survive and, and come in and invade. Um, so in some areas, there might be an increase in pressure. In, in other areas, maybe there's a decrease in pressure because a major competitor, another fish species or another insect species is now gone. It's out of the picture because it can't survive in the environment. Um, and so it's constantly changing. And so it's really impossible for us to say whether or not the, the negative impacts um, or rather, whether these impacts are negative in the first place, um, which actually kind of got me to one of the first questions I had with this paper, which was, uh, are you are you guys really convinced that we can use leaf decomposition rate as a way to measure the health of the ecosystem to really look at whether or not um, whether or not we're we're having an impact, or or even on a more theoretical basis, whether we can say that the the decomposition rate of leaves is an accurate <laughs> measure of of ecosystem health, of, of ecosystem functioning, um, of ecosystem structure, um, or is this really a case of looking through um, or looking too too in depth into a, a very small cog in the machine? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely an oversimplification. Um, just because there's more decomposition occurring doesn't mean that's a good thing. I mean, it, it could definitely be a bad thing. I think of like. Um, if you think of like a, an algal bloom, for example, um, it, it just because there's this huge abundance of individuals that are that's that's happening right away, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a stable thing or, or something that's good. Exactly, because it just destroys the entire microfauna in that same waterway. I mean, personally, I think that that. There's many. I mean, we we mentioned, or, or you know, I, I mentioned the in the the intro, the idea of of lignin being the uh, the kind of gold standard for looking at at the health of a um, or the, rather the quality of the uh, the soil or or whatever matters being um, decomposed, because microbes are less likely to break down lignin as opposed to other other leaf matter. Um, but even in the studies that we look at decomposition rates, we're always focusing on leaves. Even though there's many, many, many other sources of of carbon uh, and nutrients in the uh, in nature, and so I'd imagine in, in specifically in areas that are are logged. Well, once you remove, maybe at the at the onset, you're getting a lot of woody material that enters the waterway, mm-hmm. uh, and on top of this top soil and, and other nutrients that enter the those areas. Um, and so certainly woody material is primarily lignin. So we get this massive amount of lignin that enters the water. And so now in theory, if we're basing it on lignin, we're going to say, okay, well, it's not very good quality material to be decomposed. Um, but, and again, jumping to the, the, the idea of this time 
um, this concept of time in these studies, if we were to come back 50 years from now and the plant material is now much less, well, how many leaves are really entering the waterway at that point? Now we'd have a system which might, in fact, at that point, have developed breakdown material apart from leaves, apart from um, of, of these kind of um, these primary producers, and might in fact be more reliant on something else taking place. Either either the, the headwaters might be um, might become dead zones, or perhaps it focuses more on insects. You know, we know that in in areas that are are logged, we see spider diversity increases, presumably because the diversity of other insects, especially beetles, increases. Um, and so one could imagine that as these, these, um, these changes occur in this environment, we now have a system that is no longer reliant upon primarily leaves as, uh, as the, um, the foundation for these, the, for these decomposition processes. So when we're saying, you know, when we're looking at the health of a system, by leaf de decomposition, I imagine this is a strong underlying assumption is that leaves are the primary source of or material to be decomposed. Um, but but I have I have trouble seeing that because certainly if we're looking at a forest, well, of course, in a leaf decomposition, it's you know high decomposition rate, it's perhaps healthy or perhaps not, um, you know, and we can make this assessment. But w when you look at like a tundra environment. There's still decomposition taking place in these areas, but I, I would be I'd be very doubtful that most of the decomposition is occurring on plant material. What else? What else could be a big source of nutrients for these decomposers if it's not leaves in the forest environment? Yeah, I feel like. Feel, sorry. No, you, like, can, you can go ahead. No, I, I, thought, just, I thought you were done. Sorry. Yeah, I was um, just going to add because leaves are. Uh, Leaves are like, especially in the fall. Leaves are the most like the most prominent thing that will fall to the ground and will actually make its way to the waterway. So, what else could be added to that, Kyle? To you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I same thing. Um, the reason we're using this is because of primary production, right? This is the largest trophic level that we can look at. So, just by the the amount of energy that's going through the system. Plants should have should be the um, the highest amount of energy that would be uh, the highest amount of energy being uh, flowing back into the system through decomposition because it's the largest trophic level, right? Absolutely, and 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 certainly in these areas where where plants make up the the primary um, the primary source of material, I, I I certainly understand that that it, it is the best way to measure these rates of decomposition. However, there's a lot of other microbes that break down things apart from just just plant material and what you know what, what comes to mind is um our, our cave systems for example where bat guano is the primary source of, of nutrient input um or in and 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 they support massive ecosystems where you have you know cave blind cave fish and you have um all sorts of insects and, and even spiders so predators of these insects in these regions um or even when we're looking at glowworms um which are you know little demon insects because they're very pretty, but in fact most of these, uh, or rather all of these glowworm systems, are highly reliant on feeding on their own parents in order to survive. Because the main source of nutrients for glowworms is, I mean, once they they um, they pupate and they they become the 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 adults that can fly around, the adults actually can't eat; they have no mouths. So their only job is to mate, lay eggs, and then they themselves are caught in the 
the um, the silk that the glowworms produce. Um, and, and so effectively, their children are then eating them. And this is a, a big, big source of nutrients. And so we can see that it's, it's almost, it, in one sense, a contained system at the same time because these, there's this constant cycle between the nutrients of the adults becoming the, you know, the, the food for the young, which then become the adults, which then feed the young again. And so there is this, this process, this flux. Um, but when you look at, if you were to extrapolate these ideas, one could imagine that we could have these either small pockets, micro pockets, but maybe even on these larger scales, these environments which are which can persist, not because there's a new input or rather an input from what we look at as, as our primary producers or plant material, but actually might be persisting because of, of other nutrient inputs. And this I imagine is especially true in human impacted environments where, you know, if there's a lot of areas that are logged, we, we, we log them because we're putting farms in those areas. And now with the addition of farms, yes, we have plants, but we're also adding tons of nutrients um, in, the, in the form of fertilizers into these areas. And so now we have, um, like you mentioned earlier, the, the idea of, of eutrophication in these, these, uh, these blooms. Uh, we, have, we have systems that are persisting that, in theory, should not be persisting in that matter, but they are because of the, the new environment that that's there. Um, so that's that's kind of what I was thinking when I was when I was looking at it. Well, we're looking at de leaf decomposition rates, but that's assuming that what we want is a uh, you know a leafy environment. <laughs> I'm interested about to follow that idea. I'm interested to know what would the, the initial hypotheses on these experiments uh, looking at decomposition in waterways because uh, at first would you expect the decomposition rates to increase as the as the sedimentation rates increase and also as the I mean the amount of leaf matter increase like let's say in the low residue or logging residue removal situation where they're actually taking all the, the residues and bringing them with them so what is going to be replacing all the nutrients nutrients coming from the, the the dead organic matter on the ground. Uh, were they expecting, you think, to have more nutrients in the water column from that at first? Because in, in this experiment, they expected it to have an effect, to have the, the human activities have a larger effect. But maybe that was based on other studies. I wonder if the very first study on that system, they had the same expectations, thinking that there would be more nutrients from cutting down the trees, which is a bit counterintuitive for me. Well, certainly it's context dependent. They, they, uh, they, as you, as you mentioned, they talk about sedimentation and, and this idea of, of the, um, you know, of, of, of it running counter to one's expectations. But I think it's, it's a, you know, a, a number of things. One, there is this time scale, maybe 10 years down the line, once all the sediment is run off, we'll see changes based on the nutrients that have entered the waterway. But also, I mean, to, to, again, talk about just the insect diversity increasing in, or, or abundance rather, increasing in these logged areas that attract spiders, which then I imagine in turn attracts birds and the birds would produce more, more um, you know, of their, their own <laughs> fertilizer. Um, I mean, there's, there's all these additional sources of nutrients that may not even be human related or rather human caused, for example, like the fertilizer runoff that we would add into the farms. Um, or caused by the fertilizers we add to farms, but um, but but there are there's other sources of nutrients out there that aren't primarily caused or, or rather sourced from from plants, but rather they're they're coming from either um, waste products like the the tritivores and their um, and and the the bat guano, um, 
or uh, or even from from other dying dying individuals, similar to the the soil, the rhizosphere example that I'd, I'd mentioned earlier, where we're seeing the the active or the activity of the microbes, in fact, attracts microbivores, which then they themselves are not only eating the microbes and now releasing that source of nutrient into the environment, but also dying themselves and bringing nutrients from other adjacent ecosystems into that area. So for the for the plant soils, it's a, it's a form of competition, right? It's saying, okay, well, we need these nutrients, and how do I attract more of those, you know, those microbivores, those insects into my environment, so that when they die, you know, I can take up all of the their you know carcasses and use that as an energy source um, instead of my neighbor taking it. Um, so similarly, in these systems, I would imagine now that you imagine have this open plain, this open forest, there's going to be there will still be an influx of of other organisms that come in, and and now when they die, there's new nutrients that are taking place. Um, perhaps you know to to even take it to a, a further extreme, perhaps a, a deer, you know, walks by into this open area, especially as these regions start to start to have regrowth, and now you have these small seedlings, and they come in. They eat these seedlings, and let's say the deer, they, they die in this area. Well, can the same microbes that we're measuring as for our rates of leaf decomposition, can we still use those same trends to study whether or not, you know, the, the decomposers of, a, of, a, of a, a dead animal, so meat decomposers or meat microbes, um, are having the same effect? Um, I'm just, just going to add something, and then... Uh... Yeah, just um, with the conventional logging, there's that is a huge influx of nutrients as well because you're you essentially you're taking all the leaves that are on these trees and, and throwing them down to the ground in like in one uh, instance rather than slow gradual turnover every year. So you're doing this like right before you're testing the water. You're gonna see yeah decomposition is gonna increase because we've just thrown in massive amounts of uh, nutrients into the water and that's what's good. that's what causes the increase the huge increase in, uh, in nutrients then and then can we assume that that's what will be happening in the long term once these leaves disappear because now we go to the to the longer term where Arun with Arun's example of uh, seedlings growing and the deer showing up and then the deer is well, they will die at some point. You have the dead organic matter, and the microbes will go on there and start decomposing that. But now, what is the question? Like, are we talking still about the health or the processes happening in the stream? Can we have the same system? Like, do you think there will be as much um, inflow of nutrients inside that area from different the de decomposing organic matter? Uh, I'd say, you know? sort of like by definition. Uh, no, because you're talking about higher, higher and higher trophic levels. You're getting less and less actual energy that's stored at those levels. So the right. proportion of energy that's that can potentially enter into the waters is way less than if you're looking at uh, the primary production of a, an entire forest, an entire, entire forest segment, right? Right. That is interesting because yeah, there there will be some other species that will be filling the new niche that was created by human activities. So there will still be some inflow of nutrients in the ecosystem as a whole. Now the question is, are the nutrients going to make it to the water, to the waterway? That is very context dependent. That depends which species colonizes the area and what are the rainfall and like, the different processes that can actually carry the land nutrients uh, into the water, the waterway. So 
of course it is super context dependent at this point but yeah there will be something to fill that gap that was created by cutting trees Um, and that that is a good example actually when i think about it so we are a little bit a little bit over the hour now and uh, i mean this is an amazing discussion and i i mentioned this earlier to you charlie this is a great paper i mean there's there's so many ways that we can we can go um, and and talk about the kind of um, well everything from from the you know community structure and, and what's natural all the way and, and the conservation implications at, all the way into you know whether or not what we're measuring is truly what we're measuring and whether it's even worth measuring um, and so from there and you know I was wondering you know what do you guys have any any final thoughts as to the uh, the the paper and and if there's any uh, Know, any improvements or rather anything that you would have changed or done differently or no i mean it was a pretty good paper i enjoyed reading it i was a bit more attentive to where was uh, who was targeted to so it's a bit easier to follow and to read because of that uh, i did enjoy the paper and i mentioned that i was a bit less convinced by the, the graphs but it does show their point that there will be a differential decomposition rates depending on the activity happening in the area and since it's not a research just to do research actually has uh, and it's it's applicable you know it's an, it's an applied field that that's very that's more important to just see trends rather than uh, biological significance in the in the from a p-value standpoint that was as i was saying earlier so as a whole pretty interesting paper did enjoy my reading i would have to read it a couple more times to get the more of the take-home message but i did enjoy it for sure yeah, I thought it was uh, pretty good. I think uh, a takeaway from it would be if you're looking at uh, how disturbance is affecting an ecosystem, uh, take the traditional approach and, and look at the structural changes, but also include uh, ecosystem functions. And uh, don't oversimplify it. Use a, a few different functions when you're doing it. Certainly, the oversimplification of these complex systems, I think, is something that we struggle with as as ecologists when we're we're deciding on how these experiments are run and also whether or not we should um, should take action based on on the findings of these uh, of our of our papers of our, of our results. Um, but I think it's something that we will always have a struggle with because we will never, at least conceivably, with the technology we have today. You know, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I'm sure they said the same thing prior to the invention of computers and these massive data sets and databases. Um, and, and this big data ecosystem we live in now uh, that we be you know unable to quantify all the the variation that exists and and I think I mean we are getting closer and closer but I think we'll always have that challenge of getting close uh, or, or rather representing these complex functions and so that'll always be a debate I think we'll 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 be certainly getting back to this when we start talking about conservation ecology and and getting into that section of the podcast so I'm pretty pretty darn excited about uh, about that section because I know that all three of us have uh, have very can get quite heated about those topics. Um, they're very passionate about that and and I really look forward to that.